Like Family with Brenda Donoghue. On this week's Like Family, we hear the stories of carers, husbands. There's always playful banter and flirting going on. We're still a couple at the end of the day. Daughters. But what people that you're caring for don't realise is that we do have a life as well. Sisters. Even now it still frustrates me. I'd much rather just be able to get up and do it myself. Grannies. I wouldn't have lived as long as I did only have her. (laughs) Now, have her over 30 years now. And you can join the conversation on Twitter at Brenda Donoghue or email brenda at rte.ie. I'm on the road heading towards Cork, where I'm going to meet Martin and his wife Evie and their children Alex and Olivia. In many ways, a family is a safety net of care that protects us against the ups and downs of life. But every week, almost 200,000 of us give more than 6 million hours of care to meet the extra needs of those dearest to us. More than one third of these carers are men, and Martin is one of them. He cares for Evie, for Alex, and for Olivia. When I arrive, Olivia is full of news. I asked some cake. Did you have circle time in school? Um, no. Not today? No. What did you do in school today? Uh, everyone followed me. Everyone followed you? Me. Were you the leader? Yes. What game were you playing? Running around. Running around. And bound and fall off. <gasps> and you flick it up again. We have the little ballerina Olivia. Yeah. She is the the princess of the house. Yeah. We've got the long-haired bombshell, we call him Alex, dabbing here for us at the moment, yeah. Is she embarrassed? And Alex is heading out to play with his pals with a Nerf gun. We usually get really big Nerf guns and start scouting up the hill since we build a huge base up at the top of our hill outside the estate. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Careful. Oh, you right? Oh, what's wrong? You hurt your leg. Well, you're okay now? Yes. Okay. See, she's crawling all over you now. Yeah. And she just kind of slightly banged her elbow and you did the, yeah. Yeah, she, she kind of went to go swing and then I have to be careful of what way I grab her as well, like, because, like, I like a... That was just Evie just holding it in when she thought she was going to fall. She's got a kind of a bruise already. There's a bruise coming up there now. Right? They're, yeah. they're, like, they're delicate, like, you try... Not to wrap them in cotton wool or whatever, but you do the natural reaction thing of hold by the arms. Yeah. The odds are her elbows are coming out. Yeah. Um, so while she can play, there's all, it's always in the back of your mind that, like, be careful, watch what's going on as well, like, so. Yeah, I see that. So when they met, what attracted Martin and Evie to each other? We were kind of like the male and female versions of each other. Like, he got my sense of humour, I got his sense of humour, which a lot of people don't. <laughs> Yeah, up until that point, I'd never had a proper girlfriend because I avoided them like the plague. Yeah. Really, I didn't want a girlfriend. And you're the first girl that came around and said, actually, yeah, I don't mind hanging out with you. Aww. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> bit of romance, right? And you moved in very quickly together then? Yeah, I was 19. Martin was 18. He just, like, pretty much finished his leaving cert. Um, I had been going to college in Dublin. I was doing my uh, BA in journalism. So we moved in together and then like the following year I went back to college in Cork then. So kind of worked out really all for the best. In that period before you got sick, mm. what were your kind of ambitions, hopes? My, my plan after college was to go and travel the world. Um, kind of had notions of being Carrie Bradshaw and working in New York as a writer, I think. A lot of writers end up um, kind of with that notion. Um, and then in my last semester of college, I found out I was pregnant with with Alex. So that kind of threw a bit of a spanner into the works. But it was a it, we were we were very happy when it did happen. But the plans of so the Manola plans went back in the wardrobe. They did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jimmy choose for me just yet. No, no, no. Um, it was in the pregnancy with Alex that things really did come to her head before that I was um so I was still always complaining about being tired and being sore and we always knew something was wrong um the doctors always put it down to depression like when I met you you were on antidepressants yeah and like we always knew something was wrong and like no matter what we tried nothing ever seemed to make sense and it wasn't until much later when you actually met someone who had the condition 
that mm. things started kind of falling to place. Tell me about what the condition is. Okay, so the condition is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's a connective tissue disorder um, that affects the collagen. So it means that my joints dislocate very easily, tire very easily, have gastrointestinal issues, um, heart issues, bowel issues. Eye issues, ear I, issues. <laughs> there's just, issues with just about everything. About every, just about every, yeah. everything. It's a multi-systemic condition because collagen is present everywhere in the body, so it can potentially affect any part of the body. Um, it can, pregnancy can... Uh, made the condition progress um and then I started developing um dizziness and feeling faint all the time my heart was going 90 and um, just didn't feel well desperate migraines and so I slept largely from pregnancy until Alex was about three um and were you not diagnosed at no this stage? it wasn't diagnosed no it wasn't diagnosed at that point it wasn't until um 2000 oh yeah it was 2012 and it was like you really kind of a bittersweet diagnosis because in one sense you're like now I know what's wrong with me but then you finally realize it's an incurable genetic condition so um it's always going to be a part of my life now and I was going to and I, we already had Alex and Alex was kind of already showing the signs and symptoms as well so can you remember what you thought when you first heard um, actually, I was kind of, <clears throat> sorry, I was in denial for a little while. Because although we kind of suspected something was wrong, it kind of like in an instant went from kind of thinking something's wrong to a lot of things are very wrong. And I was kind of taken aback for a little while thinking like, how can you actually be this sick all of a sudden? When it wasn't all of a sudden, it was, it was all along. But because we didn't know about it, I was, I, I never actually fully accepted it. So I think it took me a couple of months to fully get my head around how much it was going to affect our lives and how much it is mainly going to affect your life. Mm. Mm. So yeah, so I was a bit useless for the first while. Um, the first while? The first while. <laughs> <laughs> because it's an invisible condition and because people can't physically see the pain I'm in and how I'm generally feeling, um, it's difficult for people to kind of comprehend just how ill I am and I was and um then when I got the diagnosis I was like yeah now I know what's wrong with me it, it's been confirmed it's not all in my head and I can yeah I don't have to pretend that I'm okay anymore you know I'd straight away be really angry the anger was towards yeah the medical professionals who fobbed me off who told me it was all in my head I mean there were that sort of treatment there were some very very dark days where I thought it was all in my head um you know you think if if this is all in my head and there's no way to fix it you know you kind of start going down a very very dark Mm. down a very dark path took us ages to realise there's nothing in your head (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, I needed that. <laughs> was it a, a progression for you both as a family, and particularly for you, Martin, that you went from, say, doing whatever you do in terms of work to spending more time as a carer? It came on very quickly, but I almost didn't realise it happened. Because Evie's symptoms went into overdrive at the same time she got pregnant, I just kind of put it down in my head. It's like, the first time I ever dealing with a pregnant woman. It's like, they they just need lots of attention apparently so I was just I was just doing it like and like so you know I, like I was doing all the stuff that I considered was just husband looking after the pregnant wife a lot of cleaning a lot of running to the shops a lot of like carrying stuff and all this kind of dark um and I like I was I was in college at the time studying uh, videography and I decided to drop out because there was a lot going on at home and I was needed quite a lot so. When I dropped out, and I like we still, I still hadn't even put it down to condition of me being a care at this point. Dude, this was me being a dad in my in my opinion. Um, and after Alex was born, like Evie's, like still wasn't diagnosed, but she had a lot of really really bad symptoms. So again, I just kind of in my own head put that down to okay, this is a pregnant woman recovering now, and now I'm just looking after a child and a pregnant woman recovering. But 
it's almost like I didn't know any better because it's kind of what I assumed mm. that a new father would do. And I imagine this most of what a new father would be doing anyway. It just it just kind of never stopped. So usually after six to eight weeks, the mother's feeling better. She can get back to routine and helping out a lot more. That didn't quite happen for Evie. So was there a line crossed or was there a moment or was there maybe an application for an allowance where you said, I've actually moved into now being a carer? I think that, I think we only kind of realised that when I was saying to Martin, why don't you apply for carer's allowance? This is only in the last two years. Mm. Yeah. Like we've been dealing with this for years and I did it all while trying to work as much as I could in between, which was getting harder and harder. And it wasn't for like nearly six years that we realized, look, this isn't working. Um, we're going to have to, like Evie has to apply for disability. I have to apply for carers because we're not making ends meet anymore. Time can't be put into work and you know, the effort had to put in a home. And that was almost the moment. It's like, I suppose, yeah, I am a carer. So this this is my full-time job now at this point. So, um, How does it make you feel? I have a tendency to play it lightheartedly. Like a... Like it, when you're living with so many things that are going wrong in the house, it's very easy for everybody to be a ball of misery and depression. So I, I tried to joke around a lot and just be a messer and keep things lighthearted because I, I, I can't stand seeing them upset. Like, so anytime I see tears, I, I, I'll, I'll try to crack some sort of a bad joke or a dad joke or something to, just something to keep everything lighthearted because. Like you can deal with the symptoms while while trying not to let them drag you down. So yeah, yeah, that's like like you do come across as very happy kind of go lucky people, but there's a lot of seriousness there. But we just try to keep things light and fun as best you can. I imagine with the condition, with you trying to work, you know, even you're in pain, that then you have to go. Oh my god, I have to focus on a relationship as well. Yeah, sometimes it kind of almost feels like you know just two people who live together rather than then. A married couple but then he does something really really sweet or says something really sweet or I say something really nice and kind of you know so we have our moments where like she never really forgets like I, I I rarely go an hour without making some sort of lewd comment or something that only a husband would say to a wife like such so, you know there's a there's there's playful flirting always there like so yeah, yeah. um so my big gestures might be out the window for apart from special occasions there's there's always playful banter and flirting going on. Just little, just a little r- reminder, though. Yeah. We're still a couple at the end of the day, like Sean. So, Evie, is it difficult accepting help all the time? You kind of sometimes you kind of feel like a like a child, um, and it can be hard. Um, you know, even getting out of the shower. Like having a shower is is it can take a strain on my body, and even just getting. Martin to to help me and um, get out of the shower and get um, dressed and everything. It's yeah, it's kind of like if it was. I think if it was anybody else, if it was like a, a carer that wasn't my husband, it would be fair. It would be really humiliating. But um, with Martin, I'm obviously very much more comfortable with him. Um, but it is. It's difficult. You know, kind of look back at your life and you go. This isn't what I had planned, you know. So, um, yeah, it's 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 hard. It can be hard, but you know, sometimes you just have to get on with it and go. This is your life now. Um, you can do as best as you can. Um, you know, and this is and this is why I'm campaigning so hard to get help here, especially for the children, because I don't want them to end up in the same state that I am. You know that if they. <laughs> go and they see um, physios early if they have oh, occupational therapy earlier in life and they see doctors earlier in life unlike me um, then you know they may live very independent lives and um, they can go and live their dreams and travel the world and do what they want so Martin on a practical and then maybe even on a deeper level what do you think you've learned? Yeah, uh, tolerance. Uh, no, it really is tolerance. Uh, um, how to deal with people when they're down and when they're sore and when they're not at their best. But before, when I was a teenager, like I would have been like, "Oh, you're feeling a bit sad. You gotta go. Good luck. You know, I'm out." Um, gracefully, obviously. <laughs> no, I've learned to listen to people and 
you know try to help them let them say what they need as opposed to what I think they need and yeah. You definitely made a more compassionate person, definitely. Um, and, it's, and that's one thing, actually, um, about the kids seeing me ill, uh, particularly Alex, is that he's a very compassionate child, um, especially when I was pregnant. I mean, he really doted on me when I was pregnant and I was in a lot of pain. Obviously, I was like without my painkillers. Um, he's incredibly compassionate. Um, we're very, very proud of him in that in that regards. Has the whole caring idea changed you? The whole caring thing has, I think it's maybe brought us closer together, but in regards to our relationship, he's no less, no less my husband. You had me running around after, no matter what, if you were able-bodied or not, I would still be (laughs) cleaning, cooking for you, and all right, okay, got it, got it. That's not at all what I was saying. Cheeky thing. No, he's he's no he's no less my husband now than he was. We like I was saying, you know, we try not to let us get us down and try focus too much on it. We just get on with it, and it's not miserable and it's not sad. It is tough. It's not miserable. It's not sad, but it's tough. Martin's words. And I take my leave of Evie, Alex, Olivia and Martin. Hiya, Catherine. How are you? Hi, Brenda. I'm good, thank you. Next to me, Catherine Cox of Family Carers Ireland. It's tough for family carers, so I ask her what can be done. I think the biggest thing is that if there was a rights-based system in Ireland, so in other words, if a carer who's caring for a loved one in their home, whether it's a child or an adult or an elderly person they're caring for, if they had a right to supports and services under legislation so whether that service was they needed respite they needed a, a wheelchair adapted they needed a housing adaptation grant. if carers had a legal right to supports and services I believe that would immensely improve the system and improve carers role and their lot um, that's coming and there's talk about it and it will happen over the next few years but it does need to be a system that's flexible enough to meet the needs of individual carers and it needs to provide choice to carers and it needs to take into account the carers needs as well as the cared for persons needs when you think about the fact that so many people will either be carers have been carers know people who are caring and yet they're not given the attention they need the respect they deserve yeah, and part of the problem with it is that sometimes carers don't even self-identify as carers. So a, a parent has a child with a disability. First and foremost, that parent is the parent. So sometimes they don't self-identify that they're also a family carer. And if they don't identify, they don't look for information sometimes or support. So it's really important that carers identify themselves as carers and then they seek the supports and services. Now, that's not saying that they will always get those and they won't come instantaneously, but if they don't self-identify, they don't know, for example, maybe that there is a payment there for some carers, that there are supports out there. And organisations like ourselves, Family Carers Ireland, we're there to support carers through direct services like respite, but also through information, advice. We have a free phone care line that sometimes if a carer is feeling very stressed or down, um, it just needs a listening ear. They can call that free phone number and there's someone on the other end of the phone who understands them, who will listen, who won't judge them and will just support them. So turn into the right here now in Lucan Village. Uh, so we're going to see a young carer, Una McNicholas, and she helps to care for her sister, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth would have severe spinal and brain injuries, um, so requires full-time care. And Una helps care for her with uh, Una's mom. And then, as if that wasn't quite enough, Una herself would have mobility issues. So she's an amazing young girl. Um, have we many young carers in Ireland? Do we have any stats? We do. Um, recent stats just last year um, with NUIG um, would show that they're in the region of over 55,000 young carers in this country. So over 55,000 under the age of 18, which is incredible. Okay, just ringing the door. How are you? How are you? This is Una McNicholas, and Una is our actually was our Young Carer of the Year Dublin. Hi, Una. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Congratulations on the award. Thank you. Where's your sister today? She's in there. In Can bed. I go and say yeah, hello? Yeah. Una shows me into the room where I meet Elizabeth, their mum Brenda, and Snuggles the rabbit. You good boy. 
Tell me about him. Is that his name? Am I right? Snuggles is his name. Right, he's on the bed now beside me. Hello, Snuggles. Snuggles nice in the room. Snuggles is probably the perfect little rabbit for me because he's happy just to lie in bed beside me and get cuddles and he'll just cuddle in beside me. So for people who can't see it on the radio, we're actually downstairs and you've converted your sitting room into, I suppose, Liz's temple really, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. If she was up in her bedroom, she would be up there on her own all day and would have no company, but at least down here she's people in and out all day. But it was, it was a sad thing to have to bring her downstairs. Mm. Now we have a lot of teddy bears, elephants, dolls all around the place, which is causing a lot of humour to your mother and your sister. Because they're always giving out to me about the stuff I have in my room. Mm. <laughs> I guess because the room is like my whole world when I couldn't get out. Mm. So everything I had was in this one room. And I noticed as well you have a picture of yourself and Una over the bed. Beautiful, bright picture with her Young Carers Award. That's important to you. Yeah, it was it, it, it was really important to me that Una got some acknowledgement for like everything that she has done and everything she has given up because it has really affected her life to a huge extent as well. Like even... Just small things like days out or holidays or we haven't been able to do any of those sort of things. And then to have to like come home from school and look after you and top of doing like homework or other things or maybe like not being able to go out with her friends because someone has to stay with me. So she has given up an awful lot. So it meant a lot to see that she got something that acknowledged what she did. To Una, she doesn't mind doing that, am I right? No, I don't. No. So would you have any memories of Liz before she got sick? Um, I don't really have many. The only thing I really remember is when I was like really, really young, when I was like four or five, she used to give me like jockey bags around the house. <laughs> so you go on her back and yeah. you play, yeah. And do you remember much of Una before you got sick? Um, Yeah, I do. <laughs> because I was, I was 10 when Una was born, so... There's not much between me and my brother. There's only, there's less than two years. So there was a 10 year gap then between me and Una. So she was like my baby doll <laughs> who I used to look after. And is it ironic that now in a way she's helping look after you? It is because like I still feel as the older sister should be the other way around. And we have Brenda, the mammy. This has obviously happened to Liz, but it has affected your whole family. Can I take you back a little bit to maybe when you discovered or you were aware that there was something wrong with Liz? In your leaving search year, wasn't it, Elizabeth? Um, We were going out one particular Sunday and she just couldn't get up off the chair. She had been suffering with uh, backache and that for a while beforehand but um, nothing had been diagnosed or you know but just that particular Sunday she just was not able to move so we took her straight to the hospital and they discovered then that she had scoliosis and she slipped fair to Bray and it was also broken Do you remember how you felt when you heard those words? Um, shocked <laughs> surprised shocked um, couldn't believe it mm. I mean, we were very upset. We were all very upset. Yeah. I think we thought, though, at the time that it would all be sorted out with the surgery. Mm. So we thought it would be pretty simple and be able to get the surgery. Like, it would take a while to recover and then go on with life. Does that feel like a lifetime ago? Um, yeah, it does. Especially, it's, like, hard to believe now that Una is the same age I was when this happened. Mm. And it was like 10 years ago, so. You've just spent four years bedridden, Liz. Like, I spent, I had loads of spinal surgeries, which just didn't work out. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, 
Elizabeth is just having one of her cataplexy attacks. Mm. Her brain is actually still working and she can follow what's going on, but she just can't speak for the moment. Okay. But it, it's usually fleeting and it will just last a couple of uh, seconds or so and uh, she will continue on with the conversation. You OK now, Liz? Sorry, you were telling me you were... I had had a lot of spinal surgery and there were like a lot of complications as well. So I ended up with a lot of other issues. Like I ended up with like a brain injury that caused the narcolepsy and the cataplexy and also caused an adrenal insufficiency. Like I can wake up fine in the morning and half an hour later be really, really, really sick because of the adrenal insufficiency. A lot, a lot of the issues, especially the more recent ones, like the breathing and stuff, which has gotten a lot worse over the last couple of years, could have been avoided if the operation was done in time. Mm. But because we were so long waiting, it was allowed to get to a point where it was... In, like basically needed support to help me. Elizabeth is just home from Istanbul, recovering from surgery performed by Dr. Ahmed Alane. Everything happened very, very quickly. And now for the first time in years, Elizabeth can sit up independently in a wheelchair. It was totally out of the blue. We didn't have anything prepared or planned. And within two weeks of meeting him, we were over in Istanbul having tests. So it all happened really, really, really quickly in the end after years and years and years of getting absolutely nowhere. But um, What benefit? What were they hoping to achieve with the operation? They were very clear from the start that it wasn't their intention even to get you back walking. It was more uh, to get you, to get me sitting up, to be able to sit up even in my wheelchair and to get myself around instead of just being in bed and not able to sit up at all. So they like were realistic as well. Yeah. Brenda, you had to get into gear to raise money. How much money was the surgery? Oh, the surgery was about, was about all in all, about 130,000 a cost as well. About 130,000. Oh. Our friends and family have been just fantastic. So a lot of people came together. What has been the result of it? Has it been positive? Even in terms of your arms, like my arms were constantly being used to hold me in the chair so I couldn't actually use them for anything else. So being able to sit up meant that my arms were free and like I could do a lot more. What's the best thing you've done since you've been able to sit up a little bit with your arms? One of the physiotherapists actually uh, gave me a load of really nice nail varnish and I think that was the first thing I did sitting up independently was to paint my own nails and Una's nails now <laughs> can't say I did the best job but like it was a big big thing to yeah. be able to do something at all while sitting upright you have me in tears here Una can you remember that when she painted your nails what was that like for you <laughs> apart from the bad job she's claiming she did but I don't believe her how did you feel when she actually did it? You know, it was great to see her, like, able to sit up without having... Like, she didn't have to hold herself up, if you know what I mean. It's amazing to see her um, sitting up again and maybe taking on tasks that she hasn't been able to do for years. But Elizabeth is still waiting for rehab here in Ireland. Rehab that is key to her recovery. Her main problem is now that uh, she needs intensive rehabilitation. Um, just, uh, she needs it to get back into that normal way of living to learn how to do all those things again. And she also needs intensive physio as well. How much would that mean to get into Dunleary to the rehab and I suppose finish the work from the operation that was started? After the type of surgery Elizabeth has, has, has had, it has been so complex that we have been told that there was a very, very small uh, window of opportunity for her to get back to normal living to some kind of a normal living. To achieve that, she will need rehabilitation as soon as possible. So you need the rehabilitation ASAP, Liz. Yeah. Like, I'm afraid that 
they'll miss that window of opportunity to make a good recovery and I'll end up back the same way. You look into the future. You may need Una's help and support as the years go on. How does that make you feel? How do you cope with that? Well, guilty, I guess, as well, because she shouldn't have to be, like, giving up her life to look after me. She should be out doing what she wants to do and living her own life and then just be sisters rather than having to care for me or take on that responsibility. I didn't expect to come in here and to be blown away by the strength of love that sisters can have for each other. But it's very evident here. She really is the best sister I could ever have asked for. Like she has given up her, all of her teenage years to looking after me. So you can never repay her for what she's done. <laughs> Just come away from Una, our young carer, and her sister Elizabeth. I'm blown away by the sisterhood bond. Yeah, it was so evident. Even the looks that they're giving one another, mm. you can tell how close they are. Um, and they definitely have a very strong bond. And I think for Una and Elizabeth, like that friendship and that closeness keeps Elizabeth going. Yeah. Amazing. And we're on the road now. Where are we going to next? So we're heading over now to Blackrock um, and we're going to meet Shirley Thornton, who cares for her mom, Eva. And Shirley is one of these what we call sandwich carers um, because she's caring for her mum who is elderly, but she's also caring for her own son as well, um, who's just 10. Right, we put it in Google Maps, so, and off we go. Okay, off we go. Sorry, Brenda, I just need to take this phone call. It's my mum's doctor. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. No, I left it in just because she is presenting with sort of some element of symptoms of a UTI. Okay, so there is, there is something in it. Okay. Yeah, no, I can collect a prescription. Grant, I'll get back to you in the next few days if there is no improvement. Great, thanks for taking the time to call me. Okay, bye now, bye. So Shirley, your mum has the infection, urinary tract infection? She does, yeah. which, which is quite common in, in the elderly and yeah. predominantly in women. Um, so they become much more forgetful. A lot of cases, they become very, very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, not very, very aggressive, that would be wrong to say, but a very mild character would become aggressive and a shorter fuse, um, as well as just the normal irritations and things. Challenging, I feel, doesn't begin to cover what I can see in your face. I suppose if I was to be honest, Brenda... Mm. Um, there was a very big defining line when I look back at caring for my dad. My dad took on board the advice that I would give him um, when urinary tract infections would be very prominent in both their lives and when delirium would come on board. My dad would listen and over time you could say to him, Dad, do you ever think I would put you in a position where you would be unsafe or someone would hurt you? And he would be able to work that out and come back and say, no, no, I know you're right. And I would be able to say to him, what happened, happened in your head. It did happen. I'm not disputing that. But actually, it didn't happen in the real world. And, and there, was a, there was a communication that was there. Uh, he was receptive to taking on board what I was trying to say to him. Whereas with, with my mom, unfortunately, she can't. So I become the fool. I'm ignorant. If I kept my mouth shut... She wouldn't be in hospital. And you tried to say, actually, if I didn't stand up and speak up for you, probably you would be gone by now. Um, And that, and I know I use the word challenging. It's the polite way of putting it, Brenda, because um, I think when you're caring for a loved one, it's, it becomes soul destroying. Uh, You, you have a lot more tolerance with somebody who's not related to you. It impacts on you. And uh, I think since I've had a lot of, the stress taken off me from caring for two people physically. I am now allowing myself to look after myself more from a mental health point of view because uh, 18 months ago I took a severe panic attack um, and I thought I was having a heart attack. I didn't know what was going on. Um, It was the most terrifying moment of my life and suddenly I was thinking, gosh, I have a nine-year-old. So... That was quite a defining moment for me because I then realised, even though I'm sandwiched between raising a child by myself and having two elderly ill parents, I needed to look after myself. 
And I needed to try and remove the guilt because I think every carer listening to this will admit we have a guilt when we walk away for that hour or when we try to do something for ourselves. And in some ways we're at fault. I do believe we're at fault, but it's just a natural instinct that nobody can protect them like you can. But what people that you're caring for, whether they're young or old, don't probably realise is that we do have a life as well. And do you think your panic attack came from the stress of dealing with your mum and obviously, you know, being a single mum as well yourself? I definitely do, Brenda. Um, at that particular time, yeah, both my ahead. parents were in and out of in and out of hospital and numerous admissions to A&E. I suppose what I say to friends now who are in similar situations with elderly parents is we actually can't control the situation. We can only do a certain amount. So I couldn't control the numerous infections my dad was getting, which every time knocked him back a few steps. And you're desperately trying to get them back to the level where they were or just to be the dad or the mum that they were. And in actual fact, once you accept, I can't do that. I actually can't do that. Um, that is a, is a bit of a, re- a relief. So I hadn't done that. And definitely it was. It was. My, my brain was just racing constantly. I was 24-7 round the clock. I was getting phone calls. At the same time, I was dragging my son out of bed to just get round the corner to my parents to sort something out. Or if I diffused it on the phone when I'd get up there the next morning to go through the routine with them and I'd say, is everything okay? In some cases, they had no idea that they had actually contacted me. Catherine. Yeah, just um, something that Shirley said there around her own mental health and well-being. We did some small piece of research a few years ago with the College of Psychiatry and with family carers. And we found that over 80 percent of family carers suffered themselves with stress, panic attacks, anxiety. Um, and in unfortunately, in all of those cases, their caring role would have either brought that on or made it much worse. So there's no doubt that while caring can be, as Shirley said, challenging, it can be rewarding, but it can be extremely stressful. Because of those stresses, many, many carers would suffer with their own mental health and well-being. Very similar to what Shirley has said. Does that bring you any solace? You're not alone? Totally, Brenda. I I know um, that I'm definitely not alone. And I suppose I want to speak up for people because... Um, I didn't ever think probably 20 years ago I'd find myself in this position. Um, and I think we don't talk about, we don't forward plan from an elderly perspective. We don't forward plan enough. We don't talk about the what ifs. Um, I'm, I'm from a generation of people that whose parents would have said, please don't put me in a nursing home. And whether it's the right or wrong thing to do, it was just something we all grew up with. Don't put me in a nursing home. And that then puts a lot of pressure on you if somebody has a series of strokes or when dementia is very gradually creeping in and there's there's an array of things that suddenly get thrown at you, but you don't feel 100% comfortable in having to deal with them. So I was just thinking, say you're sick, who goes up to your mother then? How do you manage that? Being realistic, you can't be sick. Um... And that's that's kind of the truth of it. And that's my fear going forward. When I have been sick, Brenda, um, and when these panic attacks were quite prominent, um, it was my son. It was my son who did it. He got on his bike and he went up and still does that. Goes up and says, no, I'll go up and get Granny's breakfast and let the cat out and do anything that Granny needs. And he hoovers and he does everything. Um, so it's my 10 year old who steps in and then goes to school. Isn't that amazing? Yes, no, it is. It's, it's incredible. I don't wish this upon you, but say you're in a position when you're in your 80s. Would you like Lewis caring for you? I've always told Lewis, you know, fly your wings. Uh, you know, I have to be truthful. I've said to him, don't, don't put your life on hold for me. Um, who knows what will happen? Um and who knows what he will do with his life. And we leave Shirley to collect her mother's prescription. Well, Shirley, I suppose we better let you go. We have to go to the pharmacy. Thank you so much. Thanks a million, Brenda. Not Take all. care. All right. Bye now. 
Okay, we're on the road again, Catherine. Where are we heading to? So now we're going to Inchicore um, and we're going to visit Mary Galvin, mm. who is a grandmother to Maraid. Um, and uh, Mary is Maraid's full-time carer and has been for over 40 years. I'd say Mary's biggest concern is what happens when Mary's no longer around. So I'll just put the address into Google Maps here and off we go. The door open and everything. She must be expecting. She has a welcome party oh, here now. That's easy. That's lovely. Hello. How are you? Lovely to meet you, Mary. Thank you. I like your new. Is that a new door? The new door. Very posh. And the new door, believe me, last week caused chaos. Go away. Who's this? Introduce. This is Maraid. Hello, Maraid. Hi. No, Maraid just doesn't care really. She. She looks at you and then she loses interest, you know. Yeah. Mm. Oh, why is she getting in a bad humour? Oh, she's out of her stride, like she should be lying in her bed or something. Or really, or else, you see, she goes down to Island Bridge. Yeah. And uh, they'd all oh, have her completely spoiled down there. But today, now, because you were coming, she was taken up and, oh. yeah, explained that there was somebody coming to visit. And she's... Yeah, and tell me, people will be listening to be saying can, they can hear that sound. That's her breathing. Is the, is there, is it restricted? No, it's just she's grumbling there now, mm. and you know that she's not like that all the time now. Mm. No, 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 just now. And the tongue is out, and she's just been bit grumpy. Aren't you being grumpy? Aren't you? Me, are you being grumpy? All right. No, she's good. She's. She's great company, yeah. you know. I'd be, I'd be lost without her. Mm. I wouldn't have lived as long as I did only have her. <laughs> now, have her over thirty years now. Yeah. Mm. She was eight when she came to me. Mm. Eight. Can we, can we sit down and have a chat? Of course, you can sit down. Of course, sit down. So, Mary, first of all, I heard you're eighty-five, but you don't look it. I'm eighty-seven. What? I'm eighty-seven. Now I'm absolutely... If God, if God leaves me on the lands I live until next February, February I'll be 88. Yeah. Wow. And how are you feeling yourself? Not a bother on me. Mm. Tell me a little bit about Maraid here. What are her she disabilities? She has um, herpes and cephalitis. That doesn't sound good. What is that exactly? <laughs> well, actually, um, herpes, is, herpes is a cold sore. As in the cold sore, yeah. Somebody, when she was 10 months old, kissed her with a cold sore. Mm. I was in contact with her with a cold sore. And she developed a herpes and then she went into a convulsion and she was taken into Crumlin Hospital. And um, she was a Sorry, wee... How old was she again? Um, 10 months. And uh, she was about, about a week in, in Crumlin and one day she went into a violent, very bad seizure. She was whipped away to intensive care. And she went into a coma. And she was in the coma for um, six weeks. And she came out of the coma just like that. Which is what? For people who completely, can't Completely, completely disabled. She can't speak. She can't walk. She can't feed herself. She can do absolutely nothing. Nothing whatsoever. How old is she now? Uh, 42. Can she understand us? No. 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 She, she can, she voices, she likes. She listens to voices now and sometimes there's voices she doesn't like. It's not mine, is it? Uh, no, 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 no. No, there'll be voices. She doesn't like people who are too loud. Yeah. Now, she doesn't like to be close to that television if it's on very loud. Mm. She doesn't like that. And otherwise, she's no problem. She's 42. I'm looking at you at 87. And before we get into the whole story, that I'm thinking, you're up the stairs. You're t- how do you... How do you manage? Oh, you don't go upstairs. We have the bedroom in here. Into the right. In yeah, there. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Night, her, her, the two of us sleep in there. So and you she, sleep with her? Mm. Mm. Oh, we can't leave her on our own. Mm. Oh, I couldn't leave her on our own overnight now. You know, in a bedroom on her own because she takes seizures during the night. You know, you get the good nights and you get the bad nights and you get the good days, you get the bad days. So you just have to take them all in, in stride, you know. 
Can I take you back then to when she was 10 months old? Had she brothers and sisters? Tell me about her family Yes, she up. had... Um, her, her father was killed when he, off a motorbike when she was... I think she was five. Mm. And there was three more younger. In fact, her, the own, her sister... She has two brothers and a sister. And her sister was only six weeks old when the, the, her dad was killed. Yeah. And so I... There was no option where you just take her. Because you couldn't go into care. No way. I would not stand back in our secret to care. How many children do you have? I have them um, seven alive and one night, one that died. I had eight. Mm. Mm. They're all gone. I have 30 grandchildren and 31 great grandchildren, and another one on the way next week. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, you're one of the most impressive women I've met in a long time. Mm. So, you took over the care then of I Maraid. took her, yeah. And then and I, was your husband around? He was. He was alive then, mm. yeah. Mm. Oh, he, he was. She was his pride and joy, like, and you wouldn't. He would. He wouldn't let a fly light on her, like, kind of, you know. Oh, everything had to be for her when she'd be coming in, and a cold day coming in, he'd be stocking up the fire and all for her coming in off the bus and. If anyone said boo to her, oh, he'd go mad. But and did you think twice about your life, your life with your husband? Your probably time to kick back and start, I suppose, enjoying yourselves. Really having your own time. Well, not really. No, she became my life at that time. You know, he was here, but she became my life. He went off his own business. He could go to the workman's club and things like that. And But she was here with me. 24-7. Mm. Yeah. And what did that involve and does it involve? Can you kind of paint the picture for those who can't really see or, they're not, you know, they're not here. So well, talk me through it. She goes down to Island Bridge in the mornings and she comes home then in the afternoon. But from the afternoon then on, it was it's just like... Um, Feeding time, washing time, bedtime, medication. Uh, when she's in pain, you have to figure out where the pain is. And, you know, walk around. It's just Well, I walk around to her as if she was a normal, a normal girl. Mm. You know, she has her own. She has. Do you this, have to feed her? Oh, yeah. Mm. And she has to have, she has a suction machine over there and she has a nebulizer. Mm. And you spend a lot of time with the suction because she's inclined to um, get kind of mucusy, and it prevents her from breathing properly. Mm. So you have to suction that out, and then she has to go on the nebulizer when she gets a bit chesty. So it's one thing and another, but you get over it, you get through it. It's it's a day's work, it's a job. The job has to be done. Actually, to me, you sound like you have a very strong sense of family. And that's oh, why I you suppose. do this. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I have. Mm. We all have a sense of family. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. Mm. But she was a necessity. You know, she was really a necessity to be looked after. And I, you couldn't let her go. Mm. I couldn't. It's okay. All I'm worried about is in later life. What's going to happen in later life? I'm not going to be here forever. It just breaks my heart to think of that. Mm. I mean, whatever about the practical day-to-day mm. stuff, but it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is. It is in a way. But uh, if you if you were to... Um, what way would I put it? If you were... To, to sit down and think about it. You wouldn't do it. No. You wouldn't be able to do it. Mm. You'd just do it and get over it and be finished with it and that's it. You know? Uh, if I can get her into the respite down on Island Bridge, mm. or the, 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 the residential, if they had a place for her there, I wouldn't mind because she'd, there'd be people in there that she'd know. Mm. The staff, she would know. But I don't want her put her way out far into places where the family can't visit her. 
And that would obviously upset you. It would. Mm. I want to see her secure. Mm. Yeah, that's all. Is that the biggest thing in your life? Yeah. Mm. 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 It's my one worry. Yeah. I don't ever say it to them, but... I don't ever say it to any of them. Yeah. But it is my worry. You know, naturally it's a worry. Yeah. You, you, you wouldn't be human if you didn't worry about that part of life. Of course. You know? Mm. Tell me about Maraid. What kind mm. of a person is she? What, what's the Maraid you know? The Maraid I know it has her moments. She can be crabby. She can be cranky. Mm. She could want her own way. And some days she's very uncooperative. She'll stiffen up and, yeah, I suppose it's a a part of letting you know what she wants. It, she wouldn't be human if she didn't. She'd let you know what she wants and she'll scream a couple of times or she'll get cranky. And what's keeping her quiet now is she's listening to us talking. Mm. Mm. She has her own little, little clever way of getting around you and... Little smile, and she look at you at the corner of her eye, like as if to say, "Are you coming to attend to me, or what are you doing?" Like I'm here, kind of. And um, but she's really good now. So, Mary, if you share a room with her, do you get proper sleep? Do you look after yourself? Well, as I said, you have the good nights and the bad nights, mm. the good days and the bad days. When now the bad nights could be. That you'd be up and down to her maybe three times a night, maybe four times in the night. Mm. And maybe she'd go into a seizure and you have to get up and attend to that. And then there could be the night when she'll sleep the whole night through and there's no, not a move on her. Mm. But where do you get your strength from? I mean, is it religion? Is it love? Is it it's necessity? The, love. the love for her. The love for her. That's all. Keeps me going. Mm. You know? And so you just keep going. It's it's nothing really. It's not a job. It's it's not. Um, let's put it one way. Would you put? It's what you make it. You could make it a big job, whatever you do. But if you just face it head on and say, "Wait, now I have to get up in the morning to do this, this, and this," you yeah. get up and do it. Can I just say you're one of the most impressive people <laughs> I have met in a long, well, long thank time. Thank you for the compliment. Not at all. Mm. And I hope you have many good, healthy years left. And we so. don't have to face those issues too yeah, soon. I, mean, that I, don't worry want, I don't want to face them. I'm just, I keep pushing them aside. Mm. I know that someday they'll have to be faced, but not now. No. I'm not ready. I'm not ready, you know. Yeah. And I suppose what's so impressive and so evident is the love that you ah, have for her. You'd have to love her, though. God, you'd have to love her. Thanks to all the families who contributed to this week's programme. The Family Carers Ireland helpline is 1-800-240-724. Thank you for listening. This programme was produced by Eileen Hearn. For more information, check out rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash like family.